Welcome to Self-Discovery Radio, where the discovery of self is just a show away. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Choose Positive Living. You are under the new station's name of Self-Discovery Radio, so if you tuned in to PLV Radio, we are one of the same. We just decided to reinvent ourselves and embrace the wonderful stories of self. As everybody that uh, we interview has made a most spectacular self-discovery in their lives, and they're here to share it with you. As is my guest today, all the way from London, the UK, Lucy Branch. Now, her family has for a very, very long time been conserving those wonderful monuments that you see throughout London. Ones that we kind of take for granted. They're in the hysterical books, and we think they always look like that. Shiny and new, big and bold, for you to stand in front of and take photographs of, and maybe actually look into the history of why they're there. But they would not look as good as they did if it wasn't for Lucy Branch and her family, who have been doing this for a very, very long time. Now, we will talk a little bit about her work today, as it is something that is uh, she's very, very proud of. But we're also going to be talking about something else that she's doing, a rare gift than gold, a rarer gift than gold, uh, a book that she has written on alchemy and the journey that she's taken into writing it. And we're going to take a little one, a, a wonderful lovely stroll down this avenue of this book and uh, where this all came from as well. So let's first kind of get to know the bronzing, the restoration of all those beautiful monuments that we see around London and how it took her down the path to writing this book. Welcome to the show, Lucy. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. And uh, again, really fascinated. Let's just go with the restoration company at the moment and the preserving of um, of all the work that you do. Um, you know, a lot of people just kind of take things for, uh, for granted and think that things always look the way they do. And they don't realize how much preservation, you know, goes into it. You know, like the, the Nelson's Column and Shaftesbury's Memorial, Piccadilly Circus, uh, Westminster Bridge, all of these type of things. They need cleaning, they need preserving, they need protecting. And uh, of course, they think that, the, you know, the, the magic fairy does that. Um, you know, how about... Um, spread a little of your sprinkle dust and tell us the journey of that. Well, I I can assure you that unfortunately it isn't fairies who do the work, but um, it is um, myself and uh, many members of my family who um, all specialize in uh, different materials. And so we do a lot of the preservation work in situ, obviously, these objects are the big stuff, the stuff that can't be moved from the public domain. And so our studio has to be right out there where everybody else can see us. And we have to try and be as discreet as possible, but also um, enable, enable the public to understand what we're doing. Because really, uh, public art, unlike the kind of art that you see in galleries public art is really people it's it's art on the streets and actually um the fact that the public have access to it they should have access to it all the mm-hmm. time so um so yes it's um 
a really wonderful field in, in, in the UK because we have some incredibly special sculpture and, and an awful lot of it, actually. Um, not only historic, we have a lot of uh, beautiful contemporary sculpture too. And um, it really, I think, gives uh, the different cities particularly quite a unique uh, atmosphere because of their public art. Well, I mean, that's what a lot of people go and travel to see, don't they? You know, the particular sure. monuments, and you know, and some, they do it because, you know, the histori- uh, history behind it. I mean, you know, right now, Selfridges, uh, the TV show that's out there on Selfridges and how it all yeah. came to be, um, you know, it's a most beautiful building. But I would Fantastic. imagine, yeah. Oh, but imagine the amount of work that it would take to, to kind of bringing it back to looking like new and um, and maintaining it because it really is a piece of art in itself. It really is, but I mean, it is a constant struggle to keep it looking um, authentic because um, the finish on the on Selfridges, which which we look after, has not. Um, it wasn't intended to be touched by the numbers of people mm. that actually actually interact with it every day. And um, many people just, they're not terribly respectful of it either. Um, so you see a lot of people and they're standing and they've got their boots all over the, the beautiful bronze surfaces. And then some people do even more unmentionable things at night. We won't, mm. I won't be too detailed <laughs> about that, but it's, certainly not, it's uh, certainly not how it's supposed to be used. Um, and actually, I think um, the problem with a, a building as popular as Selfridges is actually that we have to be there nearly every other day, um, actually touching it up continuously. Um, the Queen of Time, which is the big sculpture at the front of the building, is, is a very, spe- very iconic sculpture, something that a lot of people uh, see on the programme and I mean that's that's a, actually a very very beautiful piece, but it gets absolutely um, sort of struck by pigeons. Uh, mm. They just love it, and <laughs> they want to nest all over it. And obviously, um, they they don't really appreciate the sculpture for what it is. So um, you know, actually uh, keeping preserving something like that, which has a lot of very um, sort of uh, very intricate. Um, paintwork and gilding and um is that it's quite a battle i mean you know also i mean when these things were built we didn't have cars and you know the carbon imprint uh, or you know the amount of people that are out there and you know the wear and tear on them you know is is a lot more offensive now than it ever used to be so in well it keeps your family busy for sure well it does but i mean the the problem is you are constantly battling the environment and the the more um the more polluted the environment is um obviously that comes down in the rainfall so you and the moisture that you get in the mornings and things here particularly so you're you're having a, you're constantly sort of battling what nature is is throwing at these objects and in the uk particularly they have a really um, they have a, a, a vision that they want their sculptures to they want their monuments and sculptures to be kept in a quite a pristine condition because it's respectful and they feel that it's obviously it puts the UK on show um, and and um, it makes it, it, it makes the world see the um, the UK in a particular way there are lots of other European countries who have a completely different ethos they feel that the statues should just look 
um, as sort of aged as they actually are. And And so actually you can go to Europe and you'll see graffiti all over the sculptures and you'll see very disfigured sculptures. Personally, I think we're very lucky in the UK to have this different vision of what how we should look after our art um, and I think it really is a, a bit of a shame when you see some, some really magnificent works obliterated um, by the environment well I mean you know you wouldn't go into the Tate Gallery and allow you know graffiti or people spilling coffee no. or whatever so you know I don't understand why it's allowed you know outside uh, uh, it, you know. It, they treat it like uh, like a park bench yeah. as if as if you know it's no more significance than that but actually they really have, a, they are not only commemorating a person in particular, these traditional monuments, but also it, it, it counteracts, um, keeping sculptures in good condition really counteracts antisocial behaviour. So you'll find that the, the more the sculptures look really terrible and really um, unloved, the more people you have doing really unmentionable things around them. So... Well, I it mean, really does affect them. We are in a world where, you know, kind of respect is something that's very, very challenged. You know, respect of, you know, of art, respect of each other, you know, respect of all life. And, you know, it's been definitely challenged. Um, you know, our forefathers, we just wouldn't see any, you know, um, any destroying of art whatsoever because, you know, we valued it. You know, we valued the amount of time that it took to it. And it seems to be a shame that people have got to be kind of such a disposable society. Um, But I'm not, I'm not also, I think it's, it's, it's bad policy really, because um, if the, if the councils and the governments in, in different cities um, take a stance and say, this is not acceptable, this is important, then the public do follow that lead um, when people just say, oh, we don't really care, it doesn't matter how bad it looks, actually the people think, well, this is obviously not something to value. So I, I think it's actually, it it's goes much higher than yeah. just the rank and file of, of, um, of the public. I mean, you've got uh, Portsmouth uh, Naval War Memorial. Yeah. And of course, even if people started bastising that, there would be an absolute oh, yeah. outcry. And so, you know, it's the same type of thing. You, you were, this memorial is obviously respecting those that gave their lives. But, you know, a, a sculptor who sculpted those pieces that you're maintaining probably took a lifetime for some of them. Absolutely. Um, there's some very, there's some very um, funny uh, stories, though, that we come across with these sculptures. That um, if you know, if I don't know if you know Westminster Bridge, right opposite um, the Houses of Parliament, you have a magnificent sculpture there called Bodicea, um, and she really is representative not just of the the, the historic figure of Bodicea, but um, also it was a it was a, a, a sort of allegory, an allegory to um, Queen Victoria about how we had this fantastic woman leading our country and um, that sculpture um, absolutely uh, Thornycroft who is the artist absolutely magnificent sculptor sculpted it and then the then the council wouldn't pay him for it so you think of all that effort that was made and actually he decided you know what I'm not even going to get I'm going to put it in my garage and keep it until until the council pay for it and unfortunately he died before they paid him and in the end, um, a, a relative decided, well, what, 
what are we going to do with this enormous thing that was commissioned for Westminster Bridge? And so they gave it to the city anyway. So they got it for nothing in actual fact. Oh, but it's a shame. Know, it is a shame and, and total disregard and disrespect because, <laughs> of his, I mean, of his you know, genius. you know, Leonardo with, you know, the, that's the name Channel, uh, you know, Chapel. I mean, you know, if, if you don't respect this work and the dedication and the artistry and yes. the commitment and the passion, then, you know, you, you're just, you know, regarding that wonderful gift that they're giving to us. And whether it's something like this or in all walks of life, we, you know, with that sense of value really needs to start being changed. And I think when people know there's a story behind something, I think they become more respectful of it. So I think the Absolutely. more people actually understand why something's there, what it means, um, I think then that, that attachment to it, you know, becomes so much more regarding. Uh, it's a magnificent way to teach uh, children history. I mean, if you walk around London, for example, there's so many historic figures which are represented. And it brings the history can be quite a dry subject if taught just by documents alone. Um, when it's all about the act of 1892, people don't really understand. When you see a figure and you understand their story, it really is a wonderful way to actually put across history. And I think that, um, that, that not, not only London, there's many cities that have done it very, very well. But um, uh, there's, there's many historical figures that are very controversial. And it gets a dialogue going about history, which I think children quite often in the classroom can just they they miss exactly um and there's nothing better than kind of actually seeing or you know being able to touch something uh, and you know and then the wonderment of of its story and how it came to be um you know very often the story you know outweighs the art itself um and so and know, sculpture really does magnetize people i mean yeah. they really they always want to touch it um, it's, it's one of the struggles we have uh, preserving sculpture, but actually it's not something that I'd like to see. There, there's, there's a lot of, I don't know if you've heard recently, there's a lot of controversy about whether Nelson's column should be completely fenced off to the public because they, they um, are damaging it so much by touching it. But actually um, there's something very tactile about sculpture and it mm. just draws people right to them. And, and, and I love that about sculpture. I mean, you know, you look at the, you know, Brosier, uh monument and, and you look at the detail, you know, it's, um, and, and it's done in bronze. And, you know, you just think of how hard is that to do? I mean, for anybody to even draw it is one thing, but to actually Absolutely. kind of do it in that bronze so to get such detail, you know, the folds of fabric, you know, the, the waves of hair, um, you know, the lines, you know, from around the eyes, it's, it's just like, Wow. You know, and they didn't have this kind of modern day tools that we do. I mean, everything seems to be 3D printing nowadays. Um, oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you it's know, a whole new world. Yeah, exactly. And But, you know, these were things that took months or years or a lifetime to do. Absolutely. And it was a, it was a status symbol as well. Um, I mean, the, one of the reasons that these th bronze particularly was used is to say... Um, look at our technology, look at our wealth to have something so valuable in, on our streets. It really was, and um, that's why if you look at the Bank of England, there's about eight or ten sets of huge bronze doors. It's saying, mm -hmm. look, what, look how wealthy we are, look what we represent. And, and actually, in that day and age, it was incredible. 
nowadays it really isn't as ex- anywhere near as expensive as it used to be but the thing is that um, it was about value and it was about it was it was a symbolism really the the type of material that was chosen yes and and of course they did choose you know things to last you know like these mosaic floors um, you know you look uh, especially if you go throughout Europe you'll you'll see these floors and they're probably centuries old and they're still going and just need some restoration here and there but I mean they certainly did make things to last those doors you're talking about are absolutely you know beautiful Um, Um, pieces of art themselves the way they've been sculpted in and yeah a status symbol you know it's like you walk through those doors and you're walking through those doors in such expectation absolutely absolutely it's really saying something about about what uh, what to it what to you will be experiencing and and how and how important that experience really is i mean now people architects are building enormous buildings which make an, an incredible um, sort of make the person feel incredibly small in in its own way these these great big features historic features on buildings um, made in bronze were doing exactly the same thing of their time obviously they couldn't build the scale that they can build now but they was they would it was the same principle very similar mm-hmm so, I mean, you know, it is what kind of gives London its pride. You're kind of behind the scenes unless people see you working on something. You know, Absolutely. they just probably think it always looks like that. Um, so, folks, if you are traveling to London and you're looking at these monuments, uh, know that it's Lucy and her family that are maintaining them um, in their pristine condition for you to enjoy and a little appreciation. <laughs> it's always. Well, okay. I, I think that we've got some great long, uh, monuments in London. We, we recently. We, we worked on the big uh, monument outside Buckingham Palace. Uh, it's called the Queen Victoria Memorial, just before the royal wedding. I don't know if you, you watched that on television. Oh, yes, uh, Kate Middleton. And, and, and obviously, to see to have restored something like that and then to have seen the pleasure that the crowd took in. I mean, they, they practically engulfed the entire monument. And you've got these wonderful photographs of the public um, hugging the sculpture and and. and you know, to see how beautiful it looked after its restoration, which it really needed. And, and other monuments like uh, the Albert Memorial, very famous outside the Royal Albert Hall. Th- being, being involved in projects like that where you really immediately see the, 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 the result of your work um, by the appreciation of the public, it, it's, it's a magnificent thing. Well, you know, you've got the uh, allies in Bond Street, you know. Um, yes, great uh, characters. <laughs> yes, and, it's, and you just look at them and they look so real. Um, Absolutely. We have a, a, a couple here over in Vancouver at, at our Queen Elizabeth Park, and it's a, a guy taking a picture of his family. And the amount of people who kind of skirt around them thinking they're real people, <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, and you know then of course they realise oh they're not so everyone of course has to have a picture with them, but yeah. you know they're so lifelike you know that um, you know Incredible. people initially- and and such uh, sort of they've managed to translate the personalities so brilliantly into those sculptures you can under you can understand how they've mistaken the reality yeah. and the, uh, the, the, it's blurred the the reality and the uh, and uh, the fiction really. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, just, you know, looking at some of them as well, you've got the bronze, you know, um, the, I don't know how you pronounce this, uh, Gukara Monument. Um, Gukara Monument. Um, which uh, one is the that? Soldier. It's the soldier. Oh, the Gurkha, yes. Gurkha, sorry. Yes. And, but, you know, just look at the setting of the building behind. 
incredible. Because it's not just the monument, but when you look at it, what's behind it, and you see the architecture. And, yes. You know, and that's another beautiful thing about London and England. You know, somebody just came back from England and said, like, oh, my God, I enjoyed the countryside so much. The, you know, the villages, the old homes, you know, Very the way of life. Yeah, that's still kind of centuries old. And, and uh, you know, London in its old architecture is absolutely beautiful. So it just gives a beautiful setting for these monuments. Yes. And, and they'd actually, strangely, even though the buildings are very, very large, somehow the sculptures, they're not dominated by them. They, have a, they still hold their presence and um, they're able to, to sort of dominate, um, dominate their vicinity, even though they have these really strong buildings behind them. Uh-huh. So they work very well together. I, I've just been working at um, the banqueting house on Whitehall um, working on uh, Charles I, who uh, just above the entrance of the banqueting house was uh, beheaded. And um, it's a, the t- the, even though it's a relatively small sculpture, it has incredible pathos, a real sense of, of, of pain in that sculpture. I, I, I really, I don't know whether it's infused with his sort of, uh, his, his feelings uh, before, before he was beheaded, but um, it's incredible how such a small thing can actually really stand out among such a beautiful building. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm looking at the, you know, the women of World War Two. I mean, that oh. is, you know, such a statement, you know, just, just yeah. the hanging of the clothes, you know, uh, and it's... Um, and you, I, they were recently graffitied um, oh. just when we had our election uh, just recently, uh, political graffiti written across it. We were had to go there immediately as an emergency to remove it and you just think actually it you know it's such an important monument and so so beautiful I mean you would never want to damage it but actually what it represents and who it represents um it's really misguided to to sprawl paint all over it yeah and you know that's as I say very often it's just ignorance if they actually understood the history you know, they would yeah. have more respect for it. and I, I think perhaps it's for them, they're, they're thinking about maybe the, the highest impact. So uh, they know that the cameras will be drawn to something like that. Yeah. So it gets their message across. But unfortunately, it's, it's, it's badly done, I think. Yeah, exactly. You know, just that lack of respect um, and lack of value of the artistry. Um, you know, and, you know, I hope, I mean, I know we have new art today and I know we have, you know, new different types of sculptures. But, you know, there's something about these historical art pieces that have stood the test of time with, uh, you know, a company like you guys who have been around for 60 years, right? Um, Yes. You know, maintaining these buildings and, you know, maintaining these uh, beautiful pieces of art. But they were designed to tell their story over a long period of time. And, you know, that's really what art is about, isn't it? It's to remind us of an era, of a moment or of a person. Um, It's that history captured in a moment. Absolutely. And and there's there's so many uh, little secrets behind sculpture. Um, often one of the parts of the work that we do before we get um, into the actual practical uh, restoration or conservation, one of the things that we have to do is we have to look at the, his- uh, the object in its historical context. So we have to look at um, what the object actually meant to its period, its, its era. 
and often in those when we're looking at um, we go to national archives and we look at unpublished documents and you find these stories behind these sculptures which really have been lost so um, the big uh, fountains in uh, Trafalgar Square that you may know they look they're very iconic they have green and uh, blue uh, mermaids in the centre of the fountains and everybody thinks they're very beautiful they're actually memorials to the generals that are seated behind them on the walls and when we were researching these these fountains we found that there were the most heartbreaking letters from the widows of these generals saying you promised that you'd put these sculptures against the the fountains so people understood that the fountains were for our families and actually somebody with an eye for design probably the architect decided actually these busts would not fit the the design of the sculpture at uh, the fountains very well and so he they pushed them to the back wall but unfortunately in doing that the the generals have been forgotten yeah so you get these these heartbreaking stories of the families and their their sort of little part to play in it. Yeah, and and you know when you know those kind of stories, it makes you look at it from a totally different point of view. Absolutely, because they're not just aesthetic things; they're yeah. not just pretty mermaids in a fountain. Actually, they're there to represent the naval hero, the sort of heroic deeds that were done by those generals right. and and the navy in that in those in those battles. I mean, you know, kind of talking heroic, I mean, you know, as I said, this has been in, in your family for, for 60 years. You'd st- your dad started this business. Yes, that's right. And you took over when he was 85. And, you know, very, I mean, it's obviously a father or a mother's dream for, you know, the kids to take over, you know, especially something that's such, you know, lifelong devotion. But, you know, you, you, you and your brother? Um, so actually, my husband and I, uh, who run the company now, um, my my brothers uh, were involved for a little while, but they actually stepped away, and I think they they did actually uh, follow art based careers. But I think that for them, perhaps the it's a it's a very uh, specific type of environment, a family environment, quite hard, I think, um, to be around. Maybe more so if it's father with son. I think father with daughter, it's it's a different relationship, and um, we seem to get on. You know, I mean, we have our our moments, but we right. seem to get on very well. <laughs> so uh, overall, and and I think that actually I was very lucky that my my brothers didn't decide to stay in the business because um, I think probably too many of us probably would have been too much. Right, and I mean you're you're lucky to you know have your husband join you. Yes. Now, was he there? Uh, um, in the business beforehand, or did he, he wasn't. Um, my husband and I have uh, we we actually met when we were in school. My husband and I, so we were we've known each other forever. And um, he his his aspect. He came in initially as a photographer to do the documentation of the sculptures that we because we have to do an awful lot of documentation to make sure that that. For, the, for history, really, to make sure that people know what has been done to these objects. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, he came in on that aspect, and it's impossible not to be interested in what we do. I mean, it's such a fascinating field, and he just, I think, fell in love with it the way that I'm, I, I, don't, I defy anyone not to fall <laughs> in love with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, again, it's it's preserving 
those stories of past, you know, a sense of history, and which you know is is always a connection to us in our in our today. Um, so it's you know it's beautiful when you can do that. It's like finding an old book and restoring that, and a story lost, you know. And um, so it's really really important. And it's it's one of the very few fields that actually encompasses arts and. Uh, so it's a field that encompasses arts and science. Arts and science. So we have um, the forensic parts of our work. We have we have to do a lot of analysis, looking at what what um, processes, sign, like um, well, it's chemistry based. Uh, what corrosion is going on? What what processes are going on um, on the surface? Why this object is degrading the way it is? And then you've got the art side of it, where you have to actually treat it and make it look as as stable and as beautiful obviously as, as it possibly can right so it's not just getting in there with a little toothbrush and soapy no. water <laughs> so no, you, you really have to understand why why every object degrades in a different way and you have to try and understand the root of the problem to try to stabilize the object so there's a lot of there's a lot of chemistry that comes first so now let us go to a rarer gift than gold, which is a story about Abigail Argent. And what I love there is um, it's to do with metals and her ability with metals. Now, I wonder where that came from. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she has a a talent um, in the colouring of alloys. So I'm going to let you tell us a little bit about uh, Abigail and how Abigail came about. I love the name, by the way, though. So, oh, I mean, do you? Yes, Good. I do. <laughs> um, well, Abigail is uh, a patterner, which is somebody who specializes in the coloring of metals, uh, particularly bronze, uh, because bronze has this incredible um, palette that it can offer an artist. And um, she is a really brilliant craftsman. And she comes across a link between her own craft and that of the classic myth of alchemy. And she's really fascinated by this, but really in a very academic way. She gets an opportunity to work abroad. She decides uh, she might take this job in Italy that she's offered. And she does this because she knows that it, there's an opportunity there for her to cu- pursue this interest that she's she's got in this link but inadvertently when she's in Italy she stumbles into the territory of a very powerful group of people who are actually protecting the real history of alchemy and um, it's it's a conspiracy theory about the real history of alchemy it's really looking at um, a group of people who have been changing history by removing the physical evidence objects that could prove that alchemy could have taken place and they've been taking them out of the public circulation so that it offers people looking at museum collections and, and historic objects a different viewpoint of, um, of the, the, the past, really. And it's a thriller... Uh, so quite a dangerous path that she finds us a, situ- a very dangerous situation she finds herself in. So now, how did this come about? I can understand the metals, uh, yes. and you're taking that path. But where did the you know the alchemy and and deciding to make it that you know the 
the conspiracy of changing our is, history. Yeah. Um, I I actually um, had a very good friend um, who was I I studied with for a while in Italy myself, and this very unbelievable thing happened to him. He was um, studying a very dry uh, bit of, of history for his PhD. Um, and nothing that you would ever expect to have something unexpected happen to you. Uh, well, while in a very well-known library, he asked for a book and was actually found a warning in the book to stay away from the material that he was researching. And this really, I mean, it just set my, my imagination on fire. I just felt... Why on earth would somebody be protecting this very ordinary piece of, of information? Why is it so important to someone that somebody shouldn't come across it? And so it, that was really one of the seeds for me that began this, uh, the, the, what, around where the novel began to grow. And also, I really wanted to um, play with the, the myth of alchemy because... I felt that it's one of these things that so many people know a little bit about, but not very much. Um, it's a subject that really is on the border of art and science, or myth and science. And um, I just felt, felt that it was a fantastic, um, a fantastic subject that hadn't really been explored in, in the fictional um, aspect. Mm -hmm. um, of course, there's the brilliant book, The Alchemist, which... Um there is. It's well, not really about metals in the same no. way. This this is very much about um, a, uh, a practical, because The Alchemist is quite a, an amazing book, but very spiritual yes. based. Um, this, is, this is much more about a personal journey. It's about um, the, the journey of a character who really doesn't know a huge amount about themselves, but ha is forced into a position to discover what they really are. Oh, as uh, the radio said, the self-discovery yes, <laughs> of Abigail Argent. <laughs> Looking inside ourselves for... for um, our for answers. Yes, our answers. Right, which, you know, we are so busy always looking on the outside and that we, you know, we don't know how to look on the inside and yet the inside is constantly directing us and guiding us and and making certain things stand out so we have an understanding because it reflects back to us. Um, you know, being aware of self is something that, uh, you know, people need to do a great deal more of. Um, so um, And there's so much busyness in yeah. life that um, it's very, and the, the story really is about, it's about having challenges. The main character is somebody that has a really awful disfigurement of her hands. And it's uh, something that she really has to grapple with because it, it keeps her relationships with other people at bay. Um, she finds, and it, it, this, the story really is a lot about trying to understand how, what, how that fits into who she is and trying to, to learn to deal with that. Um, that. And maybe if the situation that arises hadn't arisen, she would never have actually moved to that place where she could find out some answers for herself. And you know, there again lies the challenge of life, right? You know, it's uh, don't just accept the status quo. There's always a reason for something. There's an, always an understanding. Absolutely. And you really have to be willing to take the journey. However, you know, I mean, the whole point about a journey is that 
we don't know where we're going or why or what we're going to learn. That's the adventure of life. And, you know, if you want everything kind of painted by numbers or, you know, um, step by step knowing where you're going, you're not living. You're just kind of, you know, surviving life instead of participating in it. Absolutely. And I think that every, it's it's not an easy thing to, to look within yourself and to to see uh, who you really are. I think that takes a lot of maturity. And sometimes also, uh, I think circumstance actually can uh, really challenge you to, to, to find what more there is than you actually knew. I think often we, we don't progress ne- necessarily in a linear fashion. It's by, by big jumps and then perhaps not so much for very for a while and then another another leap it can yeah, be exactly uh, we're not designed to go linear um, no you know, we, we are you know like wind like energy it's it's constant floats constantly moving constantly zigzagging and uh, you know we're not meant to walk this straight path um, you know blindfolded and or with blinkers on um, you know it is about that participation in life to actually understand what you're here for so I can, you know, understand, as I said, the metals. But, you know, did this was this something like you were busy cleaning a sculpture and all of a sudden this story came to you? Um, it, 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 wasn't, um, it wasn't something. It was, I wanted the opportunity to try to tell people about my love of metals. And, um, but try to get it across in a way that... Um, I, th- I think fiction can do in a way that non-fiction can't. Um, non-fiction can, can about a, su- a subject like this can be very dry. And I, I, metals it is a wonderful world that actually not a lot of people know about. Um, and so this was, su- this was a, a way for me to be able to put that out there. Um, I, I really, this story came about in, in a way with lots of different seeds that came kind of all grew together. And um, it was a story that was in my head for a long time, but that I suddenly thought, it, this has got to be written down because it, it's been there too long. I think when you have thoughts that come and go, you know they're not very, there's not much weight to them. But when there's something that stays with you for a long time and actually matures, I think, I think that's when you know you've got to do something with it. Yes, the voices are, are getting too loud and too profound. Yes. It's time to really document it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sure when you, you know, started off with, you know, all this the sculpturing and everything else, that you know, author wasn't something that kind of came about. So, you know, were there, you know, were there any trepidations or you know, um, drawbacks to, well, am I an author? What do I have to do to write this book? I think that I have not my my I have not had a formal training in in writing many people study for many years creative writing and do a huge amount of um, very hard work to become um, an author and so my my worries were that um, I had this story to tell but whether I would be able to really do justice to it uh, was was my concern but the thing is that I really enjoyed writing it and it's one of these things that it didn't, even though I have a very busy life with a a job and I have a family, um, I wanted to, each night I wanted to sit down and go back into that world and write that Mm. bit more and I think that when something has momentum 
and it that can carry you along and I think actually at the end I felt that it's not about whether this will, will necessarily uh, win a huge literary prize it's actually a, just a story that I want people to enjoy and um, and, I, and I hope they do Exactly. I mean, that you know, as far as I'm concerned, the best stories are those that are coming from, you know, compulsion and passion. Um, you know, and, and it's, um, my brother is, you know, is an author and, you know, has taught the school um, and, and he's very disciplined. But it's, you know, when there's a story in you that needs to come out, you know, the perfection of it can happen afterwards, but you need to get it down. You need to follow that path because it wants to be told. Absolutely, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. And um, I mean, this story is actually—it's not just one novel. The, the story is much bigger than just one. There's, the, you couldn't have written it in one book. Um, and so I've, I've got the the next section to which I'm working on, and it's it's a real pleasure to to be able to delve into that for me. So, in some ways. It, it, it's it's not even about the audience to some extent. Yeah. I really hope they love it, but I've I've loved it too. In in a lot of ways, this is your sculpture, isn't it? Absolutely, and it's some it's a way of being able to open up this window into this privilege that I have of this world that I'm in, and um, it's not the store. This this um, the main character is not doing exactly what I do. Um, by any means, but there are, it's an, there's an overlap. She's a very different character than I am in personality, but um, it's, it's something where the, the specialism that I have is definitely something that we share as a fictional character and a, and a real person. We have, it's almost a dialogue that we can have together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I always think that you know, whatever people do, it always leads them to you know, a divine purpose. And, you know, what you do, uh, you know, in the family business with the sculptures and everything clearly is a passion and a love and a conviction, you know, built out of respect. But had you not done that, it probably wouldn't have led to the storytelling of this book. And, uh, and, and, the, and the, the, the story actually, um, it taught, it, there's a consideration through the story about the need for something other than just science yeah a need for a need for a, a, a bigger purpose and um, that, that that's a very strong theme in the book because it's something that's a strong theme in my life I feel that I, I come from quite a uh, scientific and and uh, logical thoughts kind of background with my education but actually there there's something bigger that um, that needs to be factored in in life, otherwise it's it's very desolate. Um, I interview a lot of you know quantum scientists and um, you know quantum philosophy, quantum energy, quantum this or that. And the beauty of what I'm seeing today is that they're actually now realizing that the measure of quantum energy is what people live in, called spirituality. Yes. And, you know, those that live in it, in that resonance of that energy, that divine energy, we're living the quantum energy. It's just that we just don't call it quantum. It's just what Absolutely. we live in. But scientists are now waking up to realizing, ah, oh, now I actually understand that word spirituality isn't all about kumbaya and hoo-hoo-hoo. It is a particular energy that people live in. 
uh, that opens up to knowledge, opens up to, you know, truth within, and it, you know, opens up to, to living a purposeful life. And so there is a beautiful marriage between science and spirit now. And I think that um, actually it's, it's this generation of, of science for, for a long time that lost that because the, the, the scientists of the former period, many of them had a very strong faith. Uh, they didn't see a, a you know, 19th century, they didn't see uh, necessarily that you couldn't have, uh, there was no room for a, a, a bigger purpose or a, or a spiritual aspect to their life. I think it's been a more contemporary thinking that you can't have one and you, can't, yeah. you have to, one or the other. And I think it's lovely to see that return, that, that acknowledgement and that awareness uh, return that actually that there are things that we can explain scientifically, but it doesn't have to mean that um, there's no uh, overriding, uh, overriding spirituality to that answer. I mean, you look at Nikola Tesla. Um, you know, his his technology is only really now being scratched and and beginning to uh, to be understood. You know, the thing is about people like him or even Leonardo da Vinci and all of those greats is they had an intellect that understood the gift they were being given. But it was a divine gift that they were being given. And, you know, it wasn't knowledge from their own intellect. It is their own intellect understood the knowledge that they were being given. It was much more humble thinking, I think, um, uh, a much more, uh, whereas um, I, I think that, that that aspect, that humility kind of has changed uh, in science. Uh, I think um, many scientists sort of have moved a, along the line of thinking that they had, they, they are, they have the answers themselves and, and that's, that's actually, I think, a very blind-sighted way of looking at science. Or that, you know, science is the only measure of truth. Yes. Um, which it isn't. And, uh, you know, there's some people that come by their knowledge in such a divine way that, um, you know, where the scientists then verify. Or, you know, like uh, Pascal Fractals, you know, a mathematical equation that's only now really truly beginning to understood because it was done only for the elite at that time. Only those that were of extreme high intelligence could understand it. But, you know, now today we have people, you know, like my partner working on it, whereas now to simplify the math in such a way that it's usable. And so, yeah. you know, and that's, I think, I think is what the understanding is all very well having science, but science just for science sake that is not applicable to life in the benefit of life um, is just science. You know, it needs to be used. It needs to be understood. It needs to have a place. Absolutely. And, and I mean, I, I really did try to explore this angle i mean i have a, a love of chemistry it's something that i studied a lot um uh, in university and um it has a real appeal to me and i tried to bring that to the book and uh have aspects of it but also with this other sense of of questioning and another sense of of pr trying to walk that line between the two because it's a very interesting line i think uh -huh. Definitely. Um, so what does her, your family think of this? Are they big fans? Yes, they are. I mean, I, 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 I think that um, a lot of my family have been very surprised, actually, because um, it wasn't something I particularly talked about. I, I had 
done this project, but I, I didn't necessarily write it at the beginning for any other reason than to bring it out of my own head. Um, and so that there's been an incredible element of surprise from them, and a lot of comments like, "Gosh, how do you know? How do you know so much about this or that?" Yeah. And and actually, um, a lot of it is is obviously research, which a lot of authors have to do. But a, a lot of it is just um, your own interests and being able to put them all into one place. And and so um, I think that they've been very supportive. They've they've uh, been very pleased for me, which is a nice thing. Oh, yeah, it's always good when the family supports you, definitely. <laughs> um, which not always happens, but you know, as you said, no. you wrote this book for you, so it's it's there for people who who a embrace that, but also the story that you've told. You know. Um, yes. What age group uh, have you geared this at? Well, it's adults audience um there is um it's uh not there is some uh, quite adult themes in it um a bit of violence and um and some other aspects so it's not something that i would uh, my son who is 11 is incredibly keen to read it as he's a very keen uh reader and i just keep i say no (laughs) (laughs) you'll have to wait (laughs) i think he's going to be my biggest critic when he's an adult Uh, yeah yeah. (laughs) um but also you're probably a bit biggest advocate as well so i hope so and you know of course uh, my my brother writes youth genre um so anything from kind of like the the 14 to 18 type range and and he has the violence and the uh, adventure and the spirit and uh, you know the evil and the good he writes it all in there and you know our kids today are just so you know more open-minded and uh, less sensitive. Well, I mean, I'm thoroughly horrified. I, I mean, I'm I'm probably a very bad judge of what age group it really is for because I am, um, I, I I'm horrified at even children's films. How yeah. how sort of <laughs> they seem so much more violent than I remember Bambi being. Uh, but um, on the other hand, um, it's it's. I think uh, there is nothing in it that I'm sure I haven't seen in many teen in many teen films. It's just perhaps um, and an idea that that younger audience may not really be interested in some of the themes because they are about more serious subjects and so that's really why I would probably picture it as as mainly as an adult audience right or or the uh, mature young adult Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> Which obviously your son's going to get hold of this book <laughs> and read it. <laughs> There's no holding him back. No. <laughs> but that's okay uh, because then you can have a dialogue with him about it. So, yes. you know, anything he does have question or is disturbed by, you can give your reasoning behind it and that diffuses it. Absolutely. And I, and I also feel that there's something about reading that really in many ways um, is, is very, very different than... Um, films and yes. games and all sorts of things. Words really are a very different form of, of communication. I, I would be let I would be much happier for him to read it, say, than if it necessarily was uh, was, I don't know, a film or something. Right. Exactly. And, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons I do radio instead of video is that I think people see better when they hear. And, Absolutely. And it's the same with a book. You know, their understanding of what they're reading is going to be at their particular comprehension level. 
and yes. and how they reflect themselves in the stories. It's going to relate to their own lives. So the way you've written it may be read by him in a totally different level. He could then yeah. read it again as an adult and read it completely differently. And isn't that the wonderful thing about books? Because yes. we can come back to them again and again and get something different from them because of our own place, our own point in our in our lives. Why many of my books are very dog-eared because they've been yeah exactly <laughs> so many times. <laughs> well, you know, so there was an artist on a, a TV show a little while ago saying that very first book that you read is one that's going to either entice you to being a reader or put you off being a reader. And that more and more people should introduce books to, you know, that 10 and 11 age group of a book that really captures their imagination. You know, like the Harry Potters did for a total generation. Um, you know, then when they get engaged into into that book that just takes them down that wonderful wonderment, you know, then they become the reader. Um, but if they're given a book initially that doesn't capture them, that doesn't excite them, that doesn't take them down that wonderful journey. Uh, you know, very often they just don't ever adapt to reading. Uh, I think that's absolutely true. I think there's also a lot to be said for children seeing you read. Yes. Um, I, I noticed that because we, are, we read a lot, uh, after the first thing I do in the morning, you know, is, is, is read. All my children, um, if if they're um, on the weekend and we have and, and a nice breakfast, nearly all of them want to pull a book out because it's what I want to do as yeah. well. <laughs> it's nice to be able to chat to each other, but it's also nice to be able to disappear into your own worlds, I think. And, um, and I think children seeing that, it's, it's very important. And I think, you know, when we talk about self-discovery, um, you know, I, I know for me is sometimes I'll just go to a bookstore and I'll let a book jump out at me. I don't go there looking. I just, you know, let it find me. And then that book is very relevant to the questions that I don't even know I was asking. You know, um, and it can take you down a, a journey that, you know, you close that book and, yes, that was a good story or that was a good this. But then, like, oh, wow, I didn't realize I felt that way or I saw it that way or I perceived it this way. You know, it's such a, a wonderful self-education. Uh, one of my favorite things that I've, I've done with books for many years is when I'm reading them, um, just on the back cover, I tend to write a note just about where I'm reading it or what I'm doing at the time. And then it's a funny thing because when you come back to them, it reminds you so much of, of what you think, oh, gosh, I completely forgot that that was where. And it, it takes you right back to where you were. It's a great memory. Um, it's kind of a, a time travel yes. thing. I find. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I often refer to books I read 40 years ago um, yeah. because it had an impact. You know, um, The Horseman Riding By by R.F. Delderfield. He did a, a trilogy. And, you know, it was, it was a book that was taken from um, the last century, from the Boer War, and a, fa and a guy becoming a squire of a valley. And then over the next 50 years, the changes that happened in that valley with the two wars... Um, wow. And how it changed the entire look that had been there for centuries, um, you know, of, of the valley. Because no longer was it just working the land and working for the squire. You know, people were out there going getting jobs and different careers and, and everything else. And, and I learned more about history for reading yes. that family, that book on how it changed over that 50 years for that valley than I did on any historical book. Absolutely. And, and what a great job the author did there. Yes. Because they really pierced your, mem your, your mind. 
and and opened it to that part of history. There's this one that wonderful opportunity that authors have really to be able to give their passions and give their vision of of the world and um, whatever area they're interested in through fiction. I think I think it's a very accessible way of telling. Uh, the world about something that you 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 love and you're interested in. Exactly, it's a, and you know it's it's great to be able to sit down and then talk to someone about the book. You know what you each yes. got out of it because then, you know, somebody else has read it and got something totally different out of it. Um, yes, and you know that's the beauty because now you you you're reading it from your perspective and now you're sharing that perspective with somebody else, and, yeah. uh, and you know it just opens up so much more. So I do wish people would read more and open up to what they're reading. Um, you know, I get. I, I don't know if you've ever travelled on the London Underground, the tube mm-hmm. we call it. Yes, um, it's notoriously um, very British behaviour. Everybody is very sort of looks at don't, won't look at each other and won't engage with each other and and um it's as if you know you're not standing right next to someone but it's funny because when you see people reading something that you have read and loved you'll see that people break that protocol yes that is usually very stiffly held yes um, and they break through it and they say you see them lean across and they say oh I just thought that was magnificent or oh I, you're you know you're going to cry your eyes out at the yeah. end of this book. it's an it's it's amazing how literature can do that and I, I mean you know it, it really makes me laugh when you see people do it on, on the underground because it just you know it's almost you know no there's nothing that you people will speak to each other about on the underground so yeah Exactly. Um, you know, and yes, because you're seeing someone with that book, you know, you can reach over. If somebody's you playing like a song, you know, they're in that song on their own, so lead them to it. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and probably, you know, being such an avid reader is what's made you a good writer. Well, I hope so. I've got to say I have, um, I, I was a very late reader. I was somebody that um, really struggled uh, with, uh, with, with reading but suddenly, um, when when my obviously it must have been the right moment that I I read the right book and I just became absolutely it was an unquenchable thing and I really am very very seldom without uh, a book on the go, on the go and I, even though I have very little time I seem to still devour. Uh, novels between brushing my teeth and <laughs> I don't know a few a little bit of time before bed but the thing is that it, it, it really did come across me very very strongly I, I feel sad that I didn't actually I, I reread all the children's literature that I should have read but as an adult right and I'm sad that I wasn't really at that level at the right time um, because I think you know you you were where you were meant to be, I was. Uh, I I had a huge problem reading because partly dyslexia, and and also partly because the story didn't mean anything to me, and you know, um, and basically it was teenage years that I really got into books, and I got into Barbara Cartland books oh, and love stories. Yes. You know, I'm, I'm a lovesick teenager, and I'm reading all these, you know, lovesick uh, same stories over and over again. But you know, they got me reading, and then I got into another series, and then into another series, and I'm one of these people. I pick up a book, leave me alone. I don't want to talk to you. I want to finish the book, you know. Yes. Uh, uh, my husband often comments on that. He says, oh, oh, no, you've got an... And if it's a series, he's in a very bad mood because he knows that he won't see me for <laughs> quite a long time. Yes, when, when it came to the Harry Potters, it was me. You know, shut up, I'm reading the book. <laughs> Absolutely. Mum, what about supper? Help yourself. <laughs> some, some toast.
Christ over there. Exactly. I'm reading Harry Potter. Mum, you're such a nerd. I don't care. <laughs> um, but yes, when you get into it, it's. I just love the journey that it takes you on. And, and again, I, yeah. I love the discovery of self that you find in these books. And I think um, that's, yeah. you know, you always, if it's a good book, it'll always leave you with a little light bulb moment. Uh, yes, I think so. I think you're absolutely right. And, and one of my real pleasures, uh, which you've, you've mentioned, this thing about coming back to books, but I do reread a lot of books because you just, you don't see everything the right. first time around. Even if you're a slow reader, even if you're a careful reader, there really is always so much more. And I, I find that um, if, if it's a book that I feel that um, I, I don't want to come back to necessarily I, I try and pass it on to someone but most of my books really are um you know they've been very closely studied yes. so. well you know my kids uh, we've just been in transition and it's mom you've got to get rid of these books I go no you know because uh, I, I mean yeah. so, you know I had a little video thing and behind me all the books and a lot of them you know people I've interviewed sending me books and yes. and, and you know I, I love them because they're, they're part of that they're part of that person and uh, yeah, you know a lot sure. of self-help books and um you know, you can only really read those kind of once. But what I do do is, like, I need a question. I need an answer today. I'll just go to a book and open it up to wherever it comes to. And yeah. there is always something that's, you know, right there that is the answer to what I'm seeking. Um, so, you know, books are wonderful. They really are a great way of, of um, discovering self, taking you on adventures, taking you outside of yourself. It's, um, you know, after you've put that book down, whatever you were worrying about or stressing about before suddenly has disappeared because you've been removed from the situation. Now you can look at it and go, oh, I could just do that. No big problem. Um, so they're a great escapism as well as education. Absolutely. So how do people get hold of your rarer um, wow. gift than gold? Well, it is on Amazon. Um, we've uh, done very well. It's uh, been a bestseller on Amazon. I can't Bravo. believe. Bravo. I'm astonished. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's obviously appealed to some someone. So um, it's on Amazon.com uh, for you, um, .co.uk for us here in the UK. Um, it's in uh, – there's – you can order it through bookshops. It's through with all of the major suppliers. So um, I, I think you won't have any trouble getting hold of it. And your site to, to do with the book is? It's www.lucybranch.com. Very simple. And um, I have a Twitter account, which is uh, lucybranch11, if anybody would like to tweet. Great. No Facebook? Um, actually, no. Uh, you can always uh, face. You can look at my company, Antique Bronze, on Facebook. Um, it's just Antique Bronze, and um, it's uh, got plenty of things about me and uh, the book and what we're doing, and all sorts of of interesting things about sculpture. If anybody enjoys sculpture, so. And uh, that site is antiquebronze.co.uk. That's, you can go to antiquebronze.co.uk or you can go onto Facebook and write in Antique Bronze. And the Facebook page is a little bit less formal than the website, so it kind of gives you a little bit more insight into the day-to-day goings-on of a conservator um, in London. So, Well, excellent. Well, I'm so pleased that... You know, following the family business, loving it so much, preserving all those wonderful monuments. Thank you. Um, and, you know, that has led to you writing this book. Um, 
and to, you know, opening up a new chapter and taking yourself down another journey for everyone else to share um, because that is always a wonderful gift. And, uh, and you know, I love, the, I love the graphics of the book as well. Oh, I'm uh, glad. That's really, really neat. It's very, very, very intriguing. Um, so uh, please, folks, you know, it's A Rarer Gift Than Gold uh, by Lucy oh. Branch. Uh, it's on Amazon. You could also click to it from her site. So it's lucybranch.com. And then also with the antique bronze, um, you know, you could just go to the site and look at all the sculptures that they've, you know, they've, they've restored and, and learn a little history about what you're going to go see when you go and visit London. And that's antiquebronze.co.uk. I thank you so much for being with us here today on Self Discovery. Thank you for having Radio. me. And, lovely to talk to you. Um, great talking to you. And, you know, just everything that you're doing, you know, you're honoring history, you're honoring the artists of before, and now you have become the artist of a different sculpture in the sculpture of alchemy. Uh, so, you know, thank you for writing the book. Thank you. So, folks, until next time, this is another wonderful story we've brought to you about self-discovery where Lucy discovered that there was a writer inside of her. And who knows what's inside of you? It all starts by being kind to yourself. Until next time.